play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, co-host of the popular political podcast, Pod Save America. And this is fancy. He was the former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. Dan Pfeiffer. Dan has a brand new book out called Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. And it's really good. I'm reading it right now. Uh, I have to admit, I am not a super political person. And getting ready to read this book, I felt like I was setting myself up for failure that I wasn't going to understand what it was about. But I get it, Dan. Uh, Dan is a very good writer. He's a good storyteller. And it's not as much about the political X's and O's as it is kind of an insider's look inside the Obama White House and a look at how social media and media communication has changed since the Trump administration began. But... This isn't a political podcast. This is a food podcast and a food history podcast. So coming up, Dan is going to talk about what it was like eating inside the White House, which is something he did for at least two meals a day for six years. And then we'll crack into the history of a food that Dan and I are equally in love with, dim sum. I chat with Hong Kong-based food writer and Gold Thread senior reporter Clarissa Wei about delicious dumplings. And she explains why the fun, rolly dim sum carts are the inferior way to eat dumplings. Over the years, that has really gone out of vogue. And that's gone out of fashion even here in um, Hong Kong. But first, my conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. So let's go back in time to when you were working at the White House. You said at the beginning of the book that you spent the majority of your 30s in the White House. I'm sure it was a stressful job. You were traveling with the president all the time, uh, but they were a very helpful family. How did you eat when you were working in the White House? And did you get access to the White House cook or was it BYOB, BYO lunch? The answer would be I ate poorly, mostly. Uh, you know, you get home from work pretty late at night and I'm not a cook, so I was eating a lot of you know, pretty bad takeout food for a while, or maybe it was delicious takeout food, but not great for you. Uh, but, you know, if you work in the West Wing of the White House, there is something called the Navy Mess, which is run by the Navy, uh, the U.S. Navy, and it prepares food for the White House staff. Not the same as the ones who cook for the White House for President Obama, but really, really good food. And it really, it takes so long to get in and out of the White House for security that going out for lunch was not really an option. So, I ate two to three meals a day at the White House mess for six years. So I'm very familiar with their menu. When he said the White House mess is run by the Navy, my curiosity was piqued. So when I hear the word mess, be it White House mess or Navy mess, I picture a room that looks like a school cafeteria with some utilitarian metal trays, maybe something in the bottom of a submarine. But the photo up at whitehouse.gov paints a much different picture. This is a fancy room with wood-paneled walls, fancy tablecloths and napkins, there are fresh flower arrangements, and official White House china. Even the pads of butter are molded into the shape of the White House seal, so you'll have to run your knife through the body of our national eagle if you wish to butter your patriotic bread. Go to my Instagram page, it's Your Last Meal Podcast. That is where you can see a sample menu. And I highly recommend you do this because you may never again see the words 
breakfast tacos written in such an elegant and presidential font. Now, I have to say the breakfast tacos were the most exotic thing on the menu. Otherwise, it was a little bit bland. Sorry, don't tell the president. They actually have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the lunch menu because I guess grown-up politicians with fancy suits need their childhood comfort foods. And most alarming, there was, and I quote, a charbroiled non-fat hot dog on the lunch menu, which makes me very wary of the U.S. government. Oh, and here's something else for you to look up. There is actually a Yelp review of the White House mess. There are only three reviews, but they are all five stars. So if you're ever in D.C., you know where to get a great meal of non-fat charbroiled hot dogs. Do you have a strong culinary memory of eating with the president, whether you guys were like up late working on something, eating, you know, Twinkies without Michelle Obama knowing what you were doing or? (laughs) (laughs) No, President Obama does not eat Twinkies. He is a very disciplined eater. But I would pick my most. I got a chance to eat a number of meals with Obama. when We traveled on the road. We ate together. He ate with the staff a lot, uh, you know, before events. You know, and I got a chance to go to some state dinners, both at home and abroad with him. But my most favorite memory is we were in Jordan, and we went to Petra, which is a uh, famous uh, wonder of the world there. And we did a tour with the president. And at the end of the tour, we were going to have a meal prepared by the chef of the King of Jordan. And, you know, it was traditional Middle Eastern fare with lamb kebabs and hummus and pita and everything. And we were it was set up in a shop that was uh, at the end of the tour. They cleared out for the president. It was a beautiful day, and it was the most beautiful setting in the world. And President Obama decided he wanted to eat out. To the chagrin of the Secret Service, decided he wanted to eat outside. So we started moving all the tables outside, and we sat outside amidst the ruins of Petra, the president, and maybe you know a half dozen or so of his staff uh, and cabinet members, and we ate uh, this you know feast prepared for a king, literally, uh, out in Jordan. And it was an unbelievable experience I'll never forget. Later in the show, Dan will talk about the end of the Obama presidency. And the withdrawal that goes along with that. One day you're working long hours with one of the most beloved presidents of all time. And the next day, you're not. But right now we're going to find out what he'd choose to eat for his last meal. There is a dim sum restaurant in San Francisco where I live called the Shanghai Dumpling King. And it is my wife's and I favorite restaurant. We eat there all the time. We order takeout from there. And if I could have one it was sort of like, this is the last meal I'm ever going to have. I don't know why I'm on death row for the purpose of this podcast discussion. But if I were on death row and this was the last meal, I would have uh, Shanghai Dumpling King because it's delicious, but it also is filled with really fond, nostalgic memories of many meals with my family. So is it the kind where they roll the carts around or where you walk up to the counter and pick what you want? It- Menu, no carts. Although I, I lived in Asia a little bit as a kid growing up, and my wife and I traveled in Asia, and I loved dim sum. But I've had many, been to many delicious car restaurants. And this one you actually order from the menu, and they're most famous for their soup dumplings. Oh, nice. Yeah, what are your favorite dumplings? What are your favorite pieces of dim sum that you like to order? Uh, soup dumplings, we number one. Love a shrimp dumpling, love, love a shumai, but just about basically anything. When we were in Asia, we went around Hong Kong going to every dim sum place we could find for several days including a delicious one that it has a Michelin star in a mall food court somewhere in Hong Kong. Wow, I wonder if that's the only Michelin-starred mall restaurant in the world. I believe it to be the case. I think Orange Julius is coming for him, though. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Orange Julius, Panda Express, and Sbarro's are all feeling left out. How often do you guys go out for dim sum? It's all changed. We have a two, but we have a two-month-old daughter now, so we we haven't been out in a bit. But we try to we try to get it get out 
couple times a month or we'll get to Shanghai Dumpling King when we can. We have a favorite place in New York. We have a favorite place in Washington, D.C. So whenever we get other places, we try it out. And we're big fans of, there's a chain from Taiwan. It's very famous called Din Tai Fung. Oh, yeah. We have a few uh, of them up here in Seattle. Yeah, we went to we 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 went up to a wedding in Seattle last Labor Day, and our primary purpose, other than attending the wedding of a good friend, was to get to the Din Tai Fung that's in the mall downtown that was by our hotel. Nice, it's delicious. It's really good. Dan Pfeiffer's last meal is dim sum, and his favorite thing to order is soup dumplings, otherwise known as Shao Long Bao. But we already did a Shao Long Bao episode, Dan. That was when TBTL and Livewire radio host Luke Burbank was on the show. This episode will be all about dim sum. We will get the scoop from the motherland, from the mecca of dim sum town, from Clarissa Wei, a food reporter based in Hong Kong. We'll be right back. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Dan Pfeiffer wants dim sum for his last meal, a brunch buffet of painstakingly pleated dumplings, steamed and pan fried, often stuffed with shrimp and pork and garlicky greens. We will get into some of the classic favorite dim sum dishes in just a little bit. With Clarissa Wei. She is an American living and working in Hong Kong. She's lived all over Asia and is currently a senior reporter at Gold Thread, an online publication that reports on Chinese food, travel, and culture. Clarissa says it is hard to pin down an exact date when dim sum was invented. But I chatted with James Beard Award-winning cookbook author Andrea Nguyen, and she thinks it probably started between 500 and 1,000 years ago. You know, 500 years, give or take. But in the beginning, there was no food. Dim sum was just men, laborers, gathering to drink tea. And after the People's Republic of China was established, food and drink was combined, and dim sum started to look a lot more like what we're used to now. The reoccurring theme for every single dim sum place and throughout history is that there is tea. And in Chinese culture, tea, hot tea is a digestive. It helps you digest your food, and you never have dim sum without tea. Clarissa says it's always been a breakfast or a brunch meal which is one of the reasons that I love it so much. You know, you can go out for eggs and bacon and pancakes, but it gets a little bit stale. So I've always been someone who likes leftover Chinese food for breakfast or spaghetti for breakfast. So dim sum presents a completely different and delicious option. The top five dim sum dishes, if you will, are hagal, a shrimp dumpling, a translucent crystal shrimp dumpling, as many people know. There's shumai. It's wrapped in a yellow wrapper. It's kind of an open-faced dumpling, if you will, with shrimp and pork. And on top of it, there's fish roe. 
There's also chicken feet, or they also call it phoenix claws. There's also chasu buns, which are chasu pork, and chasu is a type of Cantonese-style barbecue pork um, wrapped in a dumpling. And then the last one is black bean pork ribs. That's something that you see in virtually every single dim sum place, which are small pieces of pork ribs marinated in a black bean sauce. So I would say those are the major five. And of course, there are other menu dishes. So here in the West, which is the only place that I've ever experienced dim sum uh, on the West Coast and in Vancouver, uh, there's three ways to have the food delivered to you. So there's the restaurants where you sit in a big banquet hall and then the carts go by and you choose what you want from the carts. Then this place that I grew up with in San Francisco, we would just walk up to the counter and you would kind of point to what you want. Uh, And then there's just, you know, you sit down in a restaurant and you can order dim sum off the menu. What is the original way to eat dim sum? Is there is one of those like more prevalent than others from the start? Yeah, so I think in the West, I'm also from the West Coast. The West has a fascination with the dim sum on the carts. And originally, that was also the standard here in um, southern China, where they would, you know, have these um, like four tier carts and ladies pushing them and people screaming and you just grab what you want. So I would say that's the original version of how they served it. But over the years, that has really gone out of vogue. And that's gone out of fashion even here in um, Hong Kong and in Guangzhou because it's a waste of food. And the quality um, goes down dramatically when you're pushing these things on carts. And, you know, someone doesn't take the dish for 20 minutes. After that, it gets cold and stale and you have a wasted platter. So now these cart-led dim sum places are very rare. If they do exist, they're sort of out of a point of nostalgia or you see these places tend to be cheaper in price point. Guys, I think you need to know something. Producer Aaron Mason is on vacation. More specifically, he's at Burning Man. We don't need your judgment. People go to Burning Man and they like it. Uh, But in his place, we have Producer Point 2. Is that what you say? Producer 2.0. 2.0, yeah. (laughs) Producer 2.0. Never been too good at math. Andrew Lanier. So, Andrew... I want to talk about my dim sum anxiety. I think that the dim sum carts are fun. There's something novel because where else in your life when you go out to eat does a cart come by just filled with food that you get to choose from? But I get this anxiety that I'm not going to get what I want. Like I'm waiting for my dumplings to come by. I don't see them, but I'm hungry. So I start picking other things off the cart. Then I'm afraid that I'm going to get so full that I'm not going to have room in my stomach when my dim sum does come by. Oh, yeah. This is completely common. I feel the same way. Exactly. It's the ultimate FOMO, as you said. Yes. Fear of missing out. Like, I feel like there's a secret card in the back that's being rolled around at the tables that just know what the good things are. And I'm going to get none of it. And especially when going out to Chinese restaurants, I always feel like there's a secret menu or something that I just don't know about that I'm never going to get to try. I know. Everybody always says it's a good restaurant if there are a lot of Asian people. And that is true of the places I go for dim sum. But I sometimes think of what you're saying. I'm like, are they getting all the things that I want? So I'm actually happy to hear that the carts aren't that good because maybe I'll turn away from the carts and my own anxiety and just order off the menu like they do in Hong Kong. I grew up in the Bay Area and we would go to this place in San Francisco and my family of four would eat lunch and then we'd bring home enough for another meal and it would be 
under $20. It's so cheap. But I took a two-day dim sum cooking class and it was really involved. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of slow cooking and, you know, doing all the folding and the pleating with the dumplings. So after that, I was surprised how cheap it can be to eat dim sum. Can you talk about kind of the manual labor involved in making all this food? Sure. So for Gold Thread, we actually went to a dim sum school here in Hong Kong and it's a three-year trade school. And we just shadowed one class, and it's a lot of work. Um, the dish that they were specializing that day was hagal, which is the crystal shrimp dumpling, and you have to make the skin from scratch. And the skin is, you have to get the perfect ratio of tapioca flour and starch, and you flatten it with a cleaver. You can't use your hands, you can't use your rolling pin, and then you have to fold it. Now, the hagal is probably, I've heard from um, multiple sources, it's the dish that the, a dim sum chef is judged on just because the folding technique is so difficult. Some places say you have to have 15 pleats. Some places say you have to have 12 pleats. It takes a lot of skill. The fact that dim sum is sort of seen as this cheap brunch affair in the West, I think is definitely a misconception. Um, I think Chinese restaurants in the West are definitely compelled to serve their food at a lower price point, but it comes at a cost and that cost is quality. I've gone you know, behind the kitchen to a lot of these dim sum restaurants. They actually buy in their dim sum and will just steam it the day of. So you know, it's hot, but they don't actually make it to order. And the places that make it fresh, those places are expensive, more expensive. Obviously it's more expensive because you have to hand make every single one of these dumplings. So yeah, dim sum is an art. Um, it's like being a pastry chef. So I think if you're in the States um, or Canada and you're going to a place that serves dim sum and it's really cheap, chances are you're getting pre-made, um, pre-frozen dim sum. Um, I would try to you know, look beyond that and maybe go to a place that's a little bit more expensive and you'll see and taste the difference immediately. And I want to talk about the dim sum scene in Hong Kong because I think of it as, you know, the Mecca. Uh, and you are saying yeah. that it's worth it to go to some place that's a little more expensive. What is it like in Hong Kong? Is it considered like a special occasion thing that would you would eat? Is it affordable for everybody or is it a higher class delicacy? Yeah. So, I mean, Hong Kong is very, very westernized. And I lived in a lot of metropolitan cities in East Asia, and this is true um, everywhere I've lived, in that people don't really care about their traditional cuisine anymore, and that, like, if you have spending power, you're not going to go to an old-school dim sum place during the weekend. You're going to go to some place with novelty. You're going to go to some place where you can take a beautiful Instagram photo. It's the exact same thing as what's going on in the States. And I'm slightly ashamed, but kind of proud to admit that one of my favorite dim sum places is one of these um, establishments that has beautiful, really photogenic dim sum. And But it's also delicious. It's a place called Yam Ta, which is basically the Cantonese word for dim sum. And they have, you know, pork buns shaped like pigs. They have a custard bun and people poke a hole in it and they smash it and it has eyes on it. So it looks like it's vomiting. They have pineapple buns shaped like little birds and they like put it in a cage. They have lap chung, which is the Cantonese word for like a sausage bun, but they shape it so it looks like a little dog. You know, for a lot of people, they'll roll their eyes at that and be like, that's really tacky. But this place is really good. And I got to interview the chef and his name is um, Winston Yip. And he was classically trained as a dim sum chef. 
The dim sum dishes that are in restaurants in Hong Kong and in China are pretty similar, if not the same as we have here in the West. That's not usually the case because, you know, otherwise Chinese restaurants here have a lot of dishes that don't actually exist in China. There's a lot of Americanized Chinese food and it's hard to find, quote, what you would call authentic. Uh, I wonder why it's such a seamless turnover to having the same dishes here as you have there. Oh, yeah. What we know is Americanized Chinese food. That was, you know, pre-2000s, early 90s, 80s, 70s. And this is completely due to immigration patterns and income levels. In Vancouver and Los Angeles, these were the two main cities of choice for people immigrating from Hong Kong and Guangzhou. The Americanized Chinese food that we know, that was born out of necessity. The people who came over, uh, many of them were fleeing war. They were not college educated. A lot of them were not chefs by trade. But now, especially post 2000s, the immigrants who are coming over are college educated. They had restaurants in China. They know what good food is and they know how to source their ingredients. So the difference between what it's like in China versus what it's like in the West is getting smaller and smaller. And I would argue that some dim sum restaurants in Vancouver and Los Angeles are better than the average ones in mainland China or the average ones in Hong Kong. There is a beautiful collection of islands here in Western Washington called the San Juan Islands. And on Lopez Island, when you drive past another car on one of the country roads, it is customary to say hello to the other driver by raising your index finger, a very small but meaningful gesture. And there is a similar gesture that occurs at dim sum parlors. When you go to a traditional dim sum restaurant and you see people pouring tea for one another, um, you'll see that, say, you know, your uncle pours tea for you. You will tap two fingers, your index finger and your middle finger on the table. And you'll see that all over the world in Chinese communities. And that's sort of a way to say thank you. Are you familiar with the hand gesture that I'm talking about? Like when you're tapping your two fingers on the table? No, I've never noticed that before. This hand gesture is unique to Cantonese cultures. um, And it's because of a story of an emperor who was traveling with his, um, you know, entourage, but he was going incognito. The emperor poured tea for one of his servants. And when the emperor does something like that for you, you usually just bow your head down, you know, kotow to him, full body kotow. But because the emperor was in disguise, um, the servant couldn't do that. And so he just tapped his two fingers on the table as a sort of a demonstration of the kotow, um, but in a hand gesture form. And that has come to symbolize thank you. Um, in Cantonese culture. So yeah, the next time you're at a dim sum restaurant, take a look. When people are pouring tea for one another, you'll see people tapping their fingers um, on the table. And that's purely just a way to say thank you. Oh, I love that. And so do you only use that as a thank you when someone pours you tea? Yes. Yeah. It's specific to dim sum culture, Cantonese tea culture. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, some final words from Dan Pfeiffer. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite. 
just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Dan Pfeiffer spent six grueling years working for the President of the United States. You can imagine how stressful it must be to help run the country, responding to every crisis and emergency 24-7, 365. At one point, Dan's blood pressure got so high, he had to be hospitalized. So when Dan left the White House, he needed to decompress and headed to Asia with his wife for a long, much-needed vacation. Now he's back, writing books, hosting one of the top podcasts in the country, and parenting a brand new baby. So I have a question that comes from one of your big fans. She says she never misses an episode. My friend, Kim Holcomb, she says, how do you strike a healthy balance in your life? Ignorance is bliss has never been more true. Knowing as much as you do, is there a trick to staying rational and sane? Or do you stress eat and feel exhausted like the rest of us? I get this question a lot as we travel around the country doing Positive America stuff. And, and when I was doing a tour for my book, and what I tell people is you don't have to live in the river of terribleness all the time. You can get out. It is fine to put down your phone, put down Twitter, put on a movie, go to the gym, go for a hike. What my wife and I did primarily when she was pregnant was every night before bed, we would watch the Gilmore Girls. So like just be in this happier easier time in America and just hang out in Stars Hollow and just so it's like find something that is enjoyable because this is a marathon not a sprint so you can take a break from the terribleness and then once you feel re-energized get back involved you know make some more phone calls knock some more doors send some more tweets whatever it is you do it's okay you don't you don't have to you don't have to suffer every minute of the Trump administration if you get a chance to take a break I encourage it self-care is important and that was Dan Pfeiffer's last meal Be sure and pick up Dan's new book. It's called Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. One of my favorite things about the book are the footnotes. Normally, I'm annoyed by a footnote because it makes me lose my place in the book, but Dan has some funny footnotes in there. Also, have a listen to his podcast, Pod Save America. Thanks to Gold Thread senior reporter Clarissa Way. You can check out all of her work at clarissaway.com. And she has written for all kinds of publications like Bon Appetit, National Geographic, NPR, and the LA Times. Thanks to Andrea Wynn, author of two fabulous cookbooks, Asian Dumplings and The Fuck Cookbook, which won a James Beard Award this year. We had a silent consult behind the scenes, so I would like to thank her for that. This show was produced by Andrew Lanier and me. Theme music, as always, by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 